Let's pray. So good Father, good shepherd, would you remind us this morning that you don't let go, that not only are you with us, but you're for us. And so in the midst of whatever we find ourselves in today in life, whether it's in the the valley low or the mountain high, God, may we know that you're present, that you're good, that you're with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're over a weekend now, which means that many of us are suffering from sleep deprivation. Um, talking, of course, about the Olympics. Any, anybody else? Week plus in, and you've stayed up way too late watching sports that in a week you won't care about. Anybody with me? I mean, man, I, and I've, I've noticed, too, that in this Olympics, I've grown, I've just, I'm spoiled. I'm spoiled. Now, I don't even want to watch, like, the qualifying races. I just want to watch the medal races. Is anybody with me? Like, I'm going to DVR everything else, and I'm just going to fast forward until, let's get to the medal race, and, and, and I also want to know, did we win? Because I don't want to watch it if we didn't win, right? Um, <laughs> I'm spoiled. I'm spoiled. There's one story, though, and I love the way that NBC weaves in these sort of human interest stories all throughout the competition, which, which in all joking aside, I absolutely love. I do. But one of those stories that just stood out to me this year is the story of the refugee team that's competing, a, a team of uh, essentially homeless Olympians from uh, different parts of the globe, but parts of the globe where because of the strife that's going on in their own country, they've, they've had to flee. And so a number of them binded together, bound together and joined uh, together as a team of refugees competing in the Olympics. Uh, one of those refugees is Yusra Merdini. And she grew up and was an Olympian swimmer from Damascus and part of Syria. And she was... Um, training in places where in the pool that she was training in, there was, you know, three or four holes that bombs had blown into the top of the the roof of the pool that she was training in. And she had to, to flee from Syria. And from Syria, she went and she traveled She traveled through Lebanon to Turkey, and then she left Turkey and was trying to get to Greece when um, the boat that she was in, just a little dinghy that had 20 people in it, designed for six people, um, the engine failed when they were about 30 minutes off of the shore. And so um, this young 18-year-old Yusra Medini jumps in the water with three other people, ties ropes around her waist and her legs, and she starts swimming. For three and a half hours, she swims. And these people eventually get this boat to the shore, and they save these, she's a part of saving, including her own, 19 lives. I mean, can you imagine standing around the Olympic Village and having somebody tell you, you have a really long road getting here? If you're your, I mean, tell me more about that, yeah. Well, I trained, and I had all these, like, top-notch trainers around me and coaches, and, and she's like, oh, yeah, well, um, I've been homeless and running from my own country. I swam for three and a half hours. How'd you train, right? <laughs> Tell me more about how difficult that was. When she finally got to shore in Lesbos, she then traveled to Macedonia, to Serbia, to Hungary, to Austria, and then finally made it to Germany where she had some time to train for the Olympics. Can you imagine? 
And so we hear a story like hers, and, and our hearts sort of go out to her, and, um, but, but we love stories. As human beings, we love stories of perseverance, don't we? I mean, we love stories like your stories, who's, who, where she just didn't give up, where everything in her would have said, all right, just call it, like give up, at least give up on the Olympic dream. I mean, your dream now should be having a country you can call home and having um, a normal life and a normal family, and there's something in the human spirit, isn't there, where we just absolutely relate to and we love stories of perseverance, Stories where people just simply refuse to give up and against all odds they keep going and they, they make it. It's this universally admired and needed characteristic, isn't it? And, and it's not just in athletics or in the Olympics, although it's there, but it's in every phase of life. It's needed. In, in athletics, it is needed. I, I love the way that Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, puts it. He says, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost more than 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the winning shot, and I've missed. I've failed over and over again, and that is what makes me great. Do you love that? Because we think greatness comes because of success. But he would say, no, 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 no. My greatness was birthed in my failure, not in my successes. It's true in athletics. It's true in business. I mean, Steve Jobs, the, the co-founder of Apple, he's quoted as saying, I'm convinced that half of what separates the successful entrepreneurs from the non-successful ones is pure perseverance. The ability to keep going when it seems like all hope is lost. That ridiculous, I'm going to keep at this when it seems like nothing is going right. It's true in athletics, it's true in business, it's true in life. Maya Angelou, the great author and poet, says it like this. She says, you may encounter many defeats, but you must never be defeated. In fact, it may be necessary to encounter the defeats so that you know who you are, what you can rise from, and how you can come out of it. If you were to look up the word, do a word study of this word perseverance in the New Testament and look at the Greek word that's associated with it, it literally means, the word perseverance literally means to remain under the weight of. To remain under the weight of something. And so let's be honest this morning. None of us goes, oh yeah, that feels fun. Like if there was a perseverance course and there was like active participation necessary, we wouldn't sign up, would we? It's why God brings it into our life uninvited. Because he knows that we need it and he knows that we hate it. We hate that we need it. But it's something in us. It's more than just, perseverance is more than just making it through a difficult situation. It's more than just surviving. And I've heard a number of people, they'll come into my office or they'll grab me after the service and they'll say, listen, we walked through this like health issue or this, my, our company just absolutely failed or the, the marriage ended in divorce. And they'll say to me, I just, I didn't think I, 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 I couldn't have made it without God. And I'll think to myself, well, sure you could have. I mean, Christians say funny things sometimes, Right? I couldn't have made it without God. Sure you could have. People make it without God every day. Do you ever hear people say that and go, well, like, what were your other options? 
I'm not exactly sure. But here's what we often mean by that, because I've said that too. Here's what we typically mean by that. I would not have made it without God in a way where my life was flourishing and beautiful and good. See, because perseverance doesn't just mean that you make it through. It means that you make it through with your humanity and your hope and your joy and the goodness within you intact. You can make it through and become bitter and jaded, right? We see this happen all the time. Like people make it through really terrible situations, but what happens inside of their soul is that something dies. And what happens inside of their soul is something that makes you not want to really be around them anymore. They made it through. But sometimes we wish they wouldn't have. So what does it look like to be the type of people who walk with God in such a way that we can say, that thing that, thing that I encountered, it didn't destroy me, it actually shaped me, and it didn't take me down, it actually built me up. What does that look like? Well, Psalm 129 is going to paint a picture of what that looks like. If you have a Bible, will you open there with me? We're in a series this summer where we're walking through a selected um, portions of the Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalm 120 to 134, this great section in the Psalms that Eugene Peterson affectionately refers to as the Hebrew's dog-eared songbook. They were songs that they sang on their way up to Jerusalem celebrating any of the three pilgrim feasts that they celebrated annually. And so they would sing along the way. It's sort of like a backpacking trip turned into a musical, okay? And so this is one of the songs that they sang, Psalm 129. It's not going to be up on the screen right now, but we're going to go back and dive into it in more depth, and the passages will be up there then. But you can just listen or follow along. Songs of Ascent. Greatly they've afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Greatly they've afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he's cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. Let the grass on the housetops, which, like, let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows, and which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. And in verse 2, you get the, the thesis of this psalm. You get, in a nutshell, what this psalm is all about. Listen to what the psalmist writes. He says, greatly they have what? Afflicted. They've afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Greatly they've afflicted me from my youth, yet, yet, yet. If you have your own Bible, circle that word, yet. They have not prevailed against me. What a great picture. What a great line. What a great truth. This word affliction, if you were to look it up in the Hebrew, it literally means to squeeze or to cramp or to stress. It's the picture of taking something, taking a life in this case, and just pressing on it and boiling it down. And you've had this happen to you, haven't you? Like you've walked through a situation in your life where you felt like, I don't think I can take any more. For the Hebrew people, like when they talk about being afflicted, they're talking about 400 years in slavery to the Egyptians. They were pressed. 
Like the humanity tried to be squeezed out of them. They're talking about 70 years in Babylonian captivity, ripped away from their homes, taken away from their culture and everything they held dear. They're talking about being pressed and squished. And for us, I mean, we could fill in that afflicted blank in a lot of different ways, couldn't we? Like, man, I, no fault of my own, I, I lost the job and the relationship, it crumbled, or I made some really bad decisions and now I'm in the place that I'm in and I'm just, I'm feeling a little bit squished and pressed. And anybody want to go, yeah, that's my life this morning? Yeah, yeah. See, affliction it always does something in us. This pressing, it always stirs something in us. It either, it either creates hostility, and you've met people where this has been the case, right? They walk through something difficult, and you don't want to be around them, right? Because it did something in their soul. It hardened them in such a way, and you go, oh man, I'm not, and they're not who they used to be. See, it either, affliction either bursts in you and I hostility or hope, but never both. And so one of the questions the psalmist wants us to wrestle with is, listen, we all walk through affliction, but do we walk through affliction with the yet? It hasn't overcome me. It hasn't defined me. It hasn't shaped me in a negative way. In fact, in fact, the really difficult thing that I walked through bore in me something that I could never have gotten otherwise. Listen to the way that the Apostle Paul says it to the church at Rome. He says, not only that, but we what? Rejoice. This is one of those crazy passages in the Bible where you read it and you go, there's no way. Until you practice it. And then you go, oh yeah, no, that happens. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance or perseverance. Same word. Same word. And that perseverance produces character. And that character produces what? Hope. And that hope doesn't disappoint us. See, there's a way to walk through affliction where you end up coming out the other side, making it, but feeling absolutely dead inside. And then there's a way to walk through perseverance where actually the thing that you walk through starts to create a deeper level of humanity within your soul. The, the author of the scriptures would say that's, that's character. That's hope. That's what the psalmist is talking about, that perseverance through pain. So not just making it through, but making it through with God. Perseverance through pain has this ability to turn what any circumstance would want to just crush us and squeeze us down. It has the ability to birth life in us, to birth hope in us. See, perseverance through pain turns affliction into expansion. It bursts something new in our soul, something that wouldn't have come otherwise. See, friends, the pain that you are walking through or that you have walked through is producing something within you. And it may sound like this. It may sound like somebody saying to you, I was walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but I knew that my good shepherd was with me and I didn't set up camp in that valley. It might sound like that. It might sound like, listen, the pain that I experienced in life did not define my existence. It might sound like that. It might sound like I didn't know what to do, but I kept going and I kept trusting and I kept walking with my God. It might sound like I'm a survivor, I'm gonna make it. Destiny's child, anyone? Okay, no? 
no, wrong crew. Know your audience, Paulson. Know your. And faith, perseverance, it's this sign of maturity in our faith, isn't it? It's this sign of, see, because my kids, my kids are starting to develop perseverance now at the age of seven, but I can tell you, they have very little of it. They meet like the slightest bit of pushback, the slightest bit of affliction, which is defined by my Legos will not go together the way that I think that they should. And I followed every direction and it's not turning out right. And so I'm done. <laughs> See, perseverance is a sign of maturity. But I think, I think, I think we're raising a generation of people who at the first sign of pushback, we just tap out. What does it look like to become people who walk this pathway of affliction, not just to make it through, but to flourish? How do we become people of perseverance, where the pain that afflicts us does not overtake us in any way, shape, or form, not just making it through, but overtake us and squelching out everything within us that it means to be human? I'm glad you asked that question. That's such a good question. And luckily for us, Psalm 129 invites us into how we walk the pathway of perseverance. I want to point out just four th three things from this passage for you this morning where you, we can go, hey, we don't just want to be people who make it. We want to be people who make it with vitality and make it with life. So listen to what the psalmist says. Verse 1. 129, greatly they've afflicted me from my youth. They've squeezed me. They've pressed me. Let Israel now say, greatly they've afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. And the plowers plowed upon my back. And this is a, a picture, a sign of, of them being in slavery and being beaten down and being whipped. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He's cut the cords of the wicked. And he points back and he says, come on, let Israel now say, can you imagine walking along, you're, you're on this journey, this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate one of these feasts and somebody opens to Psalm 129 and says, all right guys, now we're going to sing. And it's almost this liturgical call and response where the worship leader will say, all right, we're going to dive back into the story of when we were a persecuted people. We're going to dive back into the story of slavery. We're going to dive back into the story of exile. And we're going to remind ourselves along the way that the storm was never the end of the story. And that God was gracious and that God was good. But he goes, hey, let Israel now say, let them raise their voice. Let them declare what's true. Let them call out the depths of pain of the affliction that they walked through. And it's in this that we start to see one of the aspects of how we become people who persevere. We do not become people who persevere by holding everything down inside, gritting our teeth, and making it. We become people who persevere by being people who share our story. And so Israel not only recounts it on a corporate level, they recount it on a personal level. They give voice to the affliction, and in giving voice to the affliction, they often weaken the power of the pain. When they speak it out, 
What's inside of them and holding them captive starts to lose its power. See, perseverance doesn't mean we bury our head in the sand and ignore all the pain and all the hardship and all the trials. That's not what it means. Perseverance means that we walk with God in a way that's deeply and sometimes painfully honest. We share our story. We embrace reality. And in a way, those who have no voice, those who have no ability to speak up and say, this is wrong, and this is what was done to me, and this is what I've walked through, people who have no voice oftentimes have no hope. And so there is beautiful power in simply speaking out. This is what I walked through. This is the pain that I felt. And this is the way I thought I was going to be unable to make it. See, that happens on a personal level for all of us. I mean, you read through the story of the Gospels. One of the things I love about Jesus, the Messiah, is that he always had room for people's stories. Even stories that were painful especially stories that were painful. And he had this unique ability to draw it out. So tell me more about how you, woman at the well, have had five husbands come here at noon and the heat of the day, ostracized from your community. Tell me more about your story of affliction. Not with a judgmental, well, you probably shouldn't have married so many guys. But with a meeting her in the pain and in the sorrow. Friends, if we cannot appreciate and listen to the story of the oppressed and the afflicted, we create space for the afflictor and the oppressor. If we don't say to people, it's a safe place to tell your story. We tell people, we tell everybody, you've got to keep the reality and the truth buried. And you know what happens when people bury the reality and the truth? It kills them. It kills them. So 68% of sexual abuse victims say nothing. Because they've been told it's not a safe place to tell your story. It's why so many people walk around with so many deep pains. It's because they haven't found somebody that will listen to them without a judgmental ear and validate their humanity. Let Israel say, it's this declaration, what's buried underneath needs to come out because if you keep it buried, it continues to have power. But if you speak about it, oh, the change, they start to fall off. They start to fall off. And not only personally, but also corporately. Like we want to be the type of people who say, listen, tell your story because your story may be the key that could unlock somebody else's prison. So we listen to people's stories, not only personally, but, but corporately. Listen, will you look up at me for just a second? We are entering into a season nationally where as the church, we need to get better at listening to the stories of the afflicted. Without judging, without saying, well, you should have or you could have or you didn't. But we need to get better at saying, we want to hear what the corporate story is that you live within and we want to validate it's reality within you. So I'm going to throw that out to you. How do we do that as a church? How do we create space to tell the story? Because the story helps us sustain, and the story helps shape us, and the story eventually gives us hope to not stop. When they retell this story, they remind each other, we can't stop. 
God's with us. God was with us in slavery for 400 years, and sure, it felt painful. And he was with us for 70 years in exile, and we didn't think we were going to make it. But our God was good, and he provided. And so maybe it just starts by sharing your story in a journal, just getting it out of you. Maybe it's sharing your story with a skilled, good counselor, which I could not recommend more, by the way. Huge help to me in my journey. Maybe it's sharing your story with a friend. Maybe it's sharing your story at Celebrate Recovery with a bunch of people who go, me too, me too. But how do we get what's in us out? That's the first thing Israel does. If they're going to walk with God, they've got to be people who say, let Israel now say so. They've afflicted me from my youth. When I say it, it not only validates it, but it helps me admit this is what happened. Verse 5. Verse 5. May all who hate Zion be, say it with me, put to shame and turned backwards. Okay, so this is one of those psalms where you read it and you go, hmm, I'm not sure I like that. Or you read it better yet and go, well, that doesn't sound like the good Christian thing to do. Which just shows us we haven't read the Psalms all that much. Because <laughs> there's a ton of what they would call imprecatory Psalms. Which that word imprecatory means it's just a calling out to God for justice. A calling out to God for vengeance. A calling out going, hey God, you see everything. You know this was wrong. Why don't you do something about it? Come on. I mean, one of my favorite ones is Psalm 58. Listen to this. Oh, God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out their fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanquish like the water that runs away when he aims his arrows. Let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who has never seized the sun. I mean, can you imagine having a coffee cup with that verse on it? Wake up in the morning, pour yourself a coffee, coffee. Oh, delicious. Oh, yeah. Right? Tattoo? Psalm 58, all the way down the arm. Wow. Delicious. It's like, settle down. And we go, yeah, we're not supposed to. We're supposed to love our, we're supposed to love our enemies. But what do we do when we hate our enemies? And we're supposed to forgive, but what happens when we have a hard time forgiving? We're supposed to, you fill in the blank, but oftentimes our realities and our oughts are very different, are they not? Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament scholar, he, he points out, and this is just beautiful and so intuitive, he says, when we read the imprecatory Psalms as followers of Jesus, New Covenant Christians, we often don't know what to do with them. Like, well, let's just ignore that Psalm and try to put it away because it's a little bit embarrassing. And he says, listen, it's just the psalmist is simply pointing out what's real. And you have three options when you find yourself in the psalmist situation. You can act out on the vengeance that you feel in your heart and your soul. And you can go, listen, not only, God, do I want you to break the teeth of those who oppose me, but I'm going to break the teeth of those who oppose me. That's an option. You can, and this is what, this is sort of, this is the coping mechanism of the American church right now. You can bury this down and go, well, it's not really there. I don't feel that way, even when we do, even we do feel that way. Just ignore it. Deny it. Hope it goes away. It won't go away. What it will do is come out in other ways. 
And so what we'll find ourselves doing is exploding on people around us and people we love, people we feel safe with. They'll get the brunt of what's really inside of us. So what's the third option? The third option is what the imprecatory Psalms, this one, Psalm 129 included. We honestly share with God, God, this is what's in me. And I trust you to do what's right. See, you can act on it, you can bury it, or you can dig it out and you can surrender it. And part of the pathway of perseverance means that you and I become people who surrender things readily to God and examine our own hearts and our own souls honestly to say, this is in me. And God, I don't like it, but God, I'm going to put it out on the table. I'm going to be honest with it, and I'm going to put it in front of you and trust that you are a God who will do with it as you see fit, but I can't keep it in me. I can't keep it in me. Isn't it great to know that we don't have to hide and play games with God and pretend like the ugly places of our soul are not there? Listen, the psalmist does, listen, break their teeth, God. That's what I'd like to see, but, 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 but. I'll trust you. I'll trust you. It's what David does in Psalm 73 in a beautiful, masterful way. In Psalm 73, verses 2 and 3, really the whole first half of the psalm, he just expresses anger. And he says, God, I've come to this place where my feet almost slipped. I stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes, God, I looked all around me and I'm doing my best to follow the way of Yahweh, to be a person of faith. And yet I look all around me and it seems like the wicked prosper. And he expresses just, God, I'm angry with you. And then in, Psalm, in, in the same Psalm, verses 21 and 22, he says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. This is, so he goes from anger to awareness. Oh man, Lord, something got a hold of me. And I don't know exactly what it was in the situation he was walking through exactly. You could read through his story and there's a ton of them. But he expresses his anger. He comes with this awareness of, wow, I was really just going at it, wasn't I, God? And then at the end of the psalm, but for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. I've surrendered it. So hey, will you look up at me for just a moment? Is there anything that you're ignoring instead of surrendering? Is there anything you're acting out on instead of handing over? Because one of the things the Psalms would invite us to do is to be honest with the deepest places of our souls and then go to God in conversation, to tell God, and then to trust God. That's what the psalm does. That's the song that they sing. Listen to the way it ends. Verse 4, he says, God, you've cut the cords of the wicked. Let them be like grass on the housetops, which wither before it grows up. Now, in Israel at this time, when they would plant a field, they would often scatter seed, but there's times where the wind would take that seed and it would blow it up onto the rooftops that were literally made of dirt and adobe, and some of those seeds would take root on the rooftops, but they would never grow to fruition. They wouldn't grow to be a harvestable 
um, field in any way, shape, or form. So he's referring to that. With which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder his sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. So he goes, hey, when the wicked, when the people who are evil and antagonistic against us, when they're trying to harvest the crop that's come from the seed that they've planted, they come up conspicuously empty. That's what happens. And he says, nobody says to them, nobody says to them, the blessing of the Lord be upon you, which was a greeting Israel would give to other Israelites during the harvest. They would be harvesting and they'd look at the harvest of the field and go, oh man, God's hand is all over you. It's obvious. And so here's what the psalmist wants to invite us into, not only to share our story and to examine our hearts, but then to look out and to recognize, all right, there's an ultimate reality that is deeper than even what I see on the surface in the circumstance. The wicked doesn't prosper. Evil doesn't win. Hate does not overpower love. Darkness does not drive out light. And oftentimes when we're walking through those situations in life that have squeezed us and that determine or necessitate our perseverance, it can seem like the wicked are prospering. And it can seem like evil's gonna win. And it can seem like everything we hope for is vanishing with the wind. And what the psalmist says is, no, that's not the case. Three realities I just wanna point out. One, there's no harvest for the wicked. Ultimately, there is no harvest for the wicked. He goes, listen, you try to gather up your fields. He goes, no, 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 no. The fruit of their life is obvious and it's empty. That's his point. And you can miss it in the midst of, well, it seems like they're prospering. He goes, just step back. I mean, this is an example would be if you've ever watched one of those ISIS types of propaganda videos. Nobody watches those and goes, you know what? I think they're filled with a little bit of joy. They're, they're filled, they, there's a lot of love there. And you go through the fruit of the Spirit and you go, it's absent on every level. And 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 the opposite, they would say, the scriptures would say, listen, the works of the flesh are evident. It's obvious. That's reality number one. Reality number two, God is faithful to his people. And oftentimes we have such a short-sighted view, we can't see it because we got want God to come through right now. And he doesn't work on our timeline sometimes. And so they stepped back into a story where um, for, they were slaves for 400 years, but God came through. They stepped back into a story where they were in exile for 70, but God came through. It's a reality. We need to step back from our circumstances to see the faithful hand of God. That's an ultimate reality, friends. Third reality, there is a joy set before you that cannot compete with the circumstances that stand against you. That's true. That's true. The joy that's set before us has the ability to determine the hope that is in us. And so how do we become the type of people in any situation we walk through, even if it's one where we feel like, oh God, I'm just being, I'm being squished down, where we go, listen, my goal here is not just to survive because I can survive without God and you can survive without God and you can make it through. People do every single day. But what does it look like? to be the type of people who say, I'm not just going to survive, but God, by your grace, I'm going to thrive. I'm going to flourish. I'm going to allow the, the affliction that stands against me to develop and expand the hope that's within me. Because that's the invitation. That's the call. 
And see, the scriptures are clear that the method for our perseverance, for your perseverance and mine, if you go, well, Paulson, all right, so share my story, examine my heart. I I get it. I'm, I'm with you. Acknowledge ultimate reality. I get it. But how do I really do it? The scriptures would say, here's how you do it. Here's how you do it. You endure or you persevere by looking to Jesus. He's our focus. He's our goal. That's how we do it. We, We chase after him. We keep our eyes on him. The scriptures would promise there is a clear reward or promise for those who endure. He says, endure so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what is promised to you. So we focus on Jesus. We remember, God, there is goodness waiting for me. That's my ultimate reality. And notice how this passage of Scripture ends. So it ends, let them say, let Israel say, I've been afflicted from my youth. And it ends with them saying, let us be the blessing of God. And you've seen this happen. You've seen this happen where people you go walk through affliction, they either become hostile or they become hopeful. And the people that become hopeful, they become people that the world is attracted to, that you're attracted to, that we can't get enough of. Why? Because the things that were in our corner as far as pain and affliction and hurt were transformed by God into blessing. What happens as we persevere is that it positions us to extend the blessing of God. See, we all want to be people who receive blessing and who give blessing, but the reality is that the capacity for blessing is often formed in the furnace. Um, I, I read a just phenomenal book this week called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, a doctor who was imprisoned in Nazi concentration camps for three years. And he writes from a psychological standpoint in there, wanting to find out why are some people able to continue to walk with hope and why are some people giving up on life? And he has this beautiful explanation, exposition of how that happens and why that happens and how it happens for us. But, but he says in his writings, he says, what is to give light must endure burning. And that's the perspective as followers of Jesus we walk into. Not, God, I want to make it, but God, I want to make it with a light, and I want to make it with hope, and I want to make it with something deeply human within me that I can give to the world around me. And friends, if God brings you through it, to it, he promises to bring you through it. Let's pray. we get ready to wrap up and go what are you walking through right now that you would say back to God God maybe you're inviting me to share my story or art or see a deeper reality that's all around me because I like you want to be a person of perseverance So, Father, our prayer all across uh, this place and all these chairs and all these rows, God, this morning would be, would you create that within us? All of us need it. None of us want to develop it. But, Lord, by your grace and by your spirit, would you help us walk that pathway of perseverance? There's a story within us to share. Would you help us find safe people and safe places to share it? 
God, there's things within our heart we need to search out. We need you to search out and draw up and things that we need to surrender and trust you with. Would you show us what those are? And Jesus, would you open our eyes to the deeper reality of the wicked not prospering, of joy that's set before us and a God that is faithful in every generation. And Lord, we'll do our best to walk with you for our joy, for your glory, and for the good of your world. It's in your name that we pray.